Hey everyone, Drew here. Just wanted to warn you that on this episode, our audio is going to be a little bit funky. More specifically, my audio is going to be a little funky. That's on me. I messed up my inputs when I was recording and couldn't really fix it halfway through recording. So here we are. Um, promise you on all future episodes, our audio is going to sound a lot better. But for now, if you can just bear with us, I think this episode is still pretty listenable. So give it a try. Next week, we'll be back to normal. Thanks for listening. So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's Dartboard Movie Night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. Welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, episode two. The second How do you ever feel, trip. Jared? I feel good. I feel good. I'm excited that we've made the voyage to week two. How are you feeling tonight? I'm great, man. I am riding high off of watching this movie, and I'm really excited to dig into it with you. Um, yeah, this movie floored me. Mm. So you dug it. You dug the Catch-22. I really, really, really did. Um, I was kind of shocked at how much I loved it. You know, I, I think, like... When, when I have heard of this movie referenced in the past, it always gets talked about as this big failure or this flop or this, you know, misfire of some sort. And I, I just did not get that reaction from this at all. Mm. Um, but before we dive into to our reactions exactly to, to the movie itself, I wanted to first kind of start off talking to you. Why, why was this on your list and, and how did we get to this? All right. So that's a, that's a good question. So I first saw this movie probably 12 years ago or so, roughly. And it was a mo movie that my grandfather showed me. And I watched it with my grandfather and my grandmother. And they would always show me these great older movies. And in addition to that, my grandfather was a huge World War II Air Force enthusiast. Like he just loved uh, B-25 Mitchells, all these different planes, which is the planes that, in, this, in this movie. And both he and my father did a lot of airplane modeling, and it was always, almost always World War II birds, you know. And a lot of that rubbed off on me, and I'm pretty positive, I never got the chance to ask him, but I'm pretty pretty sure he was drawn to the movie due to the planes and the shots of the World War II Air Force and things like that. When you and I, in the past, had started talking more about Nichols, and we had seen The Graduate and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I kind of on my own one day was like, I really want to try Catch-22 again because I knew that was his third and I remember it a little bit, like I said, and I wanted to give it another shot. And I watched like the first 20 minutes of it and was like, oh, man, I got to I, I, I'm in love with this movie. But I had something I had to do. I had to stop watching. So I decided let's get it on the board because I really wanted to revisit it and give it a full watch and have it be my one repeat that's on the board so far. Mm -hmm. and was shocked at, at the parts that I had forgotten. Like, I'm not surprised that I remembered the speech from the Italian man. I think that's a really haunting, startling, interesting, amazing perform, amazingly performed I mean, in scene. a lot of ways, it, it kind of is the thesis of the movie. Yeah, the, fall, the fall, falling of empires. And also the whole way the, the, the way Italy kind of filters itself through the ages was a fascinating perspective from this person. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you watched this the first time? I was probably, if I was going to guess, 19, 18. 
Because I find it really interesting that your your grandparents showed you this movie because it's so transgressive and subversive. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't strike me as a movie. Like, I just can't imagine my grandfather sitting me down and being like, this is a movie you should watch. Yeah. So I, that, that's really interesting to me. Again, I think it was uh, he wanted to share the experience of those incredible plane shots with me. Which, yeah, it's Which, full of those. The only movie in my mind that even gets close to this in terms of capturing World War II uh, air forces and, and, and combat is Dunkirk. But I, mm. I, this one is just on a, on a separate, I mean, they're totally different movies, but it yeah. floored me this time. I don't think I had an appreciation for how difficult filmmaking is when I first saw this movie, but just think that's thinking about the complexity of some of these shots and stuff is just, is it makes me enjoy the movie on the whole other level. So all this is to say I had a very, hazy memory of first seeing it and was something I was pretty excited about checking out and was happy to hear that you hadn't seen it before and figured it was something we could kind of kind of chat about you know no I think I think it was a great entry and you know I was I was somewhat skeptical just given the again I you know I touched on it earlier that just the critical reception the the general uh, uh, I don't know what do you the, well, just the, the, the feeling around this movie just to me struck me as eh, I'm probably yeah. going to find things to, to like about it for sure, because I love Mike Nichols. But um, it just it, I, I I don't know why, you know, you, you mentioned earlier when we were kind of doing the, the intro chat talking about uh, E.T. As, as something that for whatever reason, you have this idea in your head that you were going to hate it. And I, I, I guess I had some some feeling like that about this movie too, and I don't I don't really know why. I yeah. you know it just it, it's a perfect example of of why to me trust in the filmmaker. If yeah. you are in good hands, if you are if you are watching something made by a master, just let yourself be taken by it, and you're gonna find at least dozens of things to, to be interested yeah. in, if not fully enjoy the movie. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it. Like if you like the person that is making this art, they've proven themselves to you to, to impress you over the years, you know, it's not going to be a waste of time. It might not hit you the right way or you might not, you know, roll with it as well, but like you can still respect the person who created it and enjoy There's going to be craft it. there. Yeah. And how much too? going back to you talking about kind of the, the, vi- the vibe around this movie, the reception, the fact that it's kind of known as Nichols's first box office disappointment, has kind of the word flop is kind of slapped on it sometimes. I find a lot of these quote unquote flops end up aging pretty well, which I think is really kind of cool. Like, you know, a one, another one. When they're made by a filmmaker of this caliber, for sure. Yeah, when they're made by somebody great, um, they age nicely. I, I think, for my money, I think this movie has aged incredibly well. And um, like a fine wine. I'm not. Are you surprised that it wasn't well received when it first came out, or does it make sense to you? When when you look at the context of when it came out, I think it makes a lot more sense in hindsight than it does taking it uh, just at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean this movie was number one coming out at the height of the Vietnam War. And quite honestly, I, I think a lot of people just did not want to be reminded of the horrors of war and and how shitty it is to be in war because they're already thinking that and they're already fighting that yeah. in the streets, literally. Yeah. So to me, it makes sense why 
why why people didn't necessarily respond to it. That being said, I mean, this movie was like number nine in total box office of the year. So Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I think, I think it's a little overblown the, you know, the, the flop aspect of it. Yeah. Um, But also just contextually, I think it's really important to talk about, um, that this movie came hot on the heels of Robert Altman's MASH. Right. Which, for anyone who is not familiar with MASH, I'm sure everyone's heard of MASH the TV show. But what a lot of people don't realize in in our generation, I feel like, uh, because, you know, it's been, you know, whatever, 50 50 plus years at this point, MASH the TV show was a spinoff of MASH the movie directed by Robert Altman, Mm -hmm. uh, starring Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland and, um, you know, Robert Duvall, a bunch of people. Yeah, great cast. But it's it's so interesting to me because I watched MASH last year for the first time. I I kind of wanted to dig into Altman and and watch that and Brewster McCloud and a couple other things and... And, um, yeah, what did you think? Because I myself have never seen MASH. How was your reaction to MASH? So I really liked MASH when I watched it uh, last year. But now that I've seen this, this blows MASH out of the water for me. Really? It really does. Um, and I think, well, you know, you've mentioned maybe putting MASH on your list. So I don't want to go too deep into my reactions on MASH. But I, I really enjoyed it. I, di- I didn't love it. It was kind of like a... I, I appreciate this. I don't. I don't necessarily. I'm not getting the the love out of this that I mm-hmm. thought maybe I would. So when you say um, that, and I think, I'm sorry. Do you, go ahead. Do you mean um, you appreciate what it did for film and what it brought into the realm of possibility, or because I, whenever people say things like that, I always picture like in my mind the Ertles, the early Beatles records, or like a mm-hmm. Beach Boys song. It's like, okay, like I appreciate what this did for music, but I'm not really enjoying it super much. Uh, so I was wondering if that's what you meant or not so much, not so much in that vein when you're talking about MASH. I think it's more, I, I liked it more than that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got genuine enjoyment out of a lot of it, gotcha. but that movie to me is a mess. Yeah. It, you know, and, and, and I mean, I think that that's, that's somewhat characteristic of Robert Altman as a filmmaker. He tends to be very loose and improvisational and and he lets his actors kind of play within a scene. He loves to just lock off a camera and let a bunch of stuff happen in a single frame and just let it kind of be what it is as opposed to um, a lot of deliberate camera movements, a lot of, you know, there, there's deliberateness too, but it, it, it does feel very loose and free flowing, uh, yeah. comparatively to this, which is just tight as a drum. Yeah. Um, from, in terms of a, like a shot construction and, and execution standpoint. Mm. So mash is, is this, it's interesting because when mash came out, the reaction to it was like, Whoa, this is rock and roll. This is punk rock filmmaking Mm -hmm. because of how loose it is. And, um, and it's punk rock in its tone as well as its filmmaking style. The tone of that movie is a giant fucking middle finger to the entire Vietnam war, the concept of war, the concept of, of patriotism, Mm -hmm. uh, to the concept of religion. It's, it's just sticking its fucking thumb in it at, at, at everyone. Yeah. And, in some ways, like mash muddied the water for this movie. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating because this these sorts of things happen in movie history every once in a while, and they're not crazily uncommon. But where these two movies kind of come out around the same time and have similar ideas, the last one, Wyatt Tombstone. Yeah, the last Deep one, Impact Armageddon. <laughs> I always think of that scene from uh, from Knocked Up whenever that happens. But the last one that comes to mind would be. Um, 
No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, you know. And even those those movies, I think, are tackling different issues. But they're always those lumped together. Those are more different, for sure. Yeah, and but they you get these kind of, what I would say, almost like Beatles versus Stones rivalries that develop from these movies that come out in the same year. And I think this is going to be one of them. Because when I found out that, that Mike Nichols had was given the script of, of MASH and hated it and thought it was a, a terrible script and there's nothing that anybody could do with it, so he passed on it. And then, in the right before, like you said, MASH came out before Catch-22, when he saw MASH and saw what Robert Altman did with it, he was just gut-punched at... You know, he felt he felt fearful and dreadful. Catch twenty two was in the can. It was set to come out, and he sees Mash, and he can't believe what Robert Altman did with it. And he was describing it as like the the comedy beats that they were trying to hit in Catch twenty two felt uh, archaic and prehistoric to him. And seeing Altman's Altman's kind of nimbleness and his approach really kind of flustered him and I think made him nervous. His his direct quote about it was, we were waylaid by MASH. It cut us off at the knees. Yeah, so he, I think he felt intimidated. And then, there, but there, are, it's so interesting. There's, I've found in my research, and I think you've seen some of this too, it's like there are MASH people and there are Catch-22 people. And I think it's cool that you kind of find yourself in the, the Catch-22 camp, you know? A hundred percent. There's no doubt that that is my my preferred movie of that. I, I also love this quote from from Nichols about that that contrast. He He's describing MASH, and, and he really liked MASH a lot. Mm-hmm. He's, he's praising it. Oh, yeah. But he's saying, uh, it was light on its feet, improvised, and contemporary. It made us look like we're, we were a big thing. And he's like, and he's like, he, it, it, it basically... It took all the wind out of the sails of what the the Catch Twenty Two was trying to say, because it it positioned because of how punk rock Mash was. It positioned Catch Twenty Two as this stodgy old Hollywood style production mm-hmm. when it's anything but in yeah. in, in construction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a big budget movie in contrast, and it's just so it's so fascinating to me that these came out that quickly. They were that that close to each other. Yeah. You know, it's it's fascinating when we see a lot of, quote unquote, big budget movies today that cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, so much of it is special effects based that I feel like I can't really see where the money's going. But then you see a movie like this, like Catch-22, and there are so many shots in the movie that it's just like, I can't imagine how much that cost. Look at what's all that's going on there. And maybe... So, Doing them in single takes? Oh, it's insane. And and I think it's just cool to see a really big budget movie that you can tell cost a fortune. Like you can oh, see the money it on is the on the screen. And I think there's, there's something to be said for that. I know it sounds kind mm-hmm. of maybe cheap, but Nichols certainly had earned it. I mean, where he's at in his career, ramping into yeah, this Yeah, let's talk about yeah. where he's at in his career there. Yeah, because he, he his debut f- film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I want to say that came out in 66, 67. Yeah. Um, and he had always 66. been part of a comedy duo with Elaine May, who you know Elaine May's work much better than I do. But they were a comedy team, and then they kind of took a break, and he performed, did a lot of stage directing, and did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is a film based on a play and had some really large stars to it, including Elizabeth Taylor and others. And just every it was a big success. And it's a great, great movie. It's it's one of the best 
directorial Brilliant. debuts I've ever seen, honestly. It reminds Love me of, like, it's totally different than Reservoir Dogs, but in terms of, like, a, a quality piece of first filmmaking from a filmmaker, it's, like, it's it's really quite brilliant. And then, so so then he moves on from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and does The Graduate. Dustin Hoffman is an unknown at the time. The Graduate is a huge hit, has a massive cultural impact. They're relatively small movies, and I, I don't mean Absolutely. that in any sort of negative, but they're they're kind of character pieces. They're exploring dynamics within a somewhat small group of people. And so to, to, to go to have those huge successes, and he gets to the point where he can do whatever he wants, he takes a huge risk by adapting an incredible unadaptable novel, unadaptable book. It's 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 somewhat I didn't really get to figure out about how much of it was in his control. You know, it's not his work. I think Heller was was really supportive of it. But still, the fact that he goes and takes a huge swing like this is not unexpected. A lot of times directors do that. But I just think it's so cool that he took such a big cut. And I think Again, just to tie it back to the fact that you can tell it's an expensive movie and that in no way cheapens my or did not cheapen my experience. You know, sometimes you'll see a, a movie that's obviously expensive like Titanic and and they can be kind of show offy or, you know, something like that. This movie, none of its show offy nature bothered me. Something about the way it was like, I don't know, it just I thought it was super fucking cool. And I'm really excited that you liked it, too. Yeah, no, it does. It it doesn't feel like it's trying too hard ever. It, yeah. it it feels so in control of what it's doing, and I mean that's just a testament to to Mike Nichols' skill as a filmmaker. But I, I mean that uh, I think that control, it, you know, by this third movie of his, he is so confident in his filmmaking abilities that in some ways he convinces people that he's not the punk rock filmmaker that he actually is. You know. Yeah. 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 So he I'm 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 I, I, I'm glad that we both felt that this movie has aged really well, because Absolutely. I think he would be happy to to know that it's well received or by and that us, it's working anyway. on young people. You yeah, know? it was working great. But that's interesting. I want to go back to, to one thing you brought up a, a little bit ago, which is just the writing of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to kind of specifically talk because we talked a little bit about this being the unadaptable novel. Mm hmm. And it makes sense um, that it, you know, just structurally, this movie is all over the place in a good way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's bouncing and it's not it's not holding your hand at all. No, it's jumping from bit to bit to bit with reckless abandon for the first 45 minutes of this movie. Yeah. And it it's very easy to feel unmoored while you're watching this. Mm hmm. Until it starts tying up up those loose ends and and connecting everything and saying, oh, this scene that you thought was in chronological order was actually all kind of off kilter. Well, we should, I mean, we we haven't mentioned him yet, but we should mention Buck Buck Henry, who wrote this movie. Mm -hmm. He also wrote The Graduate. Um, He's one of the greatest writers of all time. Just a brilliant, brilliant dude. Such Such an amazing script. Great script and really good acting chops, too, which I'm sure we'll get into. There are some scenes in it where I was just rewinding and cracking up and laughing so hard. And like the, I would say the movie is really firmly divided in half. And to me, the first half of the movie is very kind of farcical and is, is very funny. And it's it has like 
old. It's almost Doctor Strange love ass. Yes, it's, that's a great comparison. Like like it's it's farce, it's absurd, it's theater, and it has kind of these old school comedy bits. I like littered throughout some which for me work great, others don't work as well. But the whole first chunk of it has this kind of light and airy tone that's like, ah, we're all fucked, but it's ridiculous anyway. What are you going to do? And then there's the tonal shift that I see in the scene where he dances with Luciana, the Italian woman that he's after and, and wooing. And they have that really sweet, tender dance. After that scene, it leads to the, the beach scene with a guy getting cut in half from the prop- propeller of the plane. And like from there on... A lot of the comedy just like bleeds out of the film and it just gets, I think, very dark and very scary. And it's like to the point where it's like, this is not fun anymore. There's no charm to this terrible experience anymore. And we're just sucked into this like never ending terror. And it's just not even you can't even laugh at it anymore. And I feel that's what I feel dips back into the comedy is like the last scene of the movie with him kind of like it turns a little bit absurdist again when he gets into the raft and starts starts paddling. Yeah. Yeah. Literally the last shot of the movie. Yeah. And Um, the optimism of hearing that or did it intentionally that he scuttled the plane and, and escaped. And that you're right. You're right. That kind of brings a little some joy well, it. you know, you get the absurdist element where he's he's running away from the building and they're having basically a conversation yeah. as he's getting further away, but they're never changing yeah. their pitch. It's just like it's very dreamlike. You yeah, know? The, that is another thing that I'm excited to talk to you about is kind of the the very sort of surreal, dreamy, weird nature that the movie lives in. But but yeah, I think that, yeah, there are still things in the second half that I find kind of comedy moments. Like Martin Balsam, when during like the uh, the air raid scene, which is an inc- the bombing scene, which is an amazing sequence that I can't wait Brilliant. to dive, dive into. Like when he's just shouting, like it's all part of the contract. Like there's something about those his delivery of his lines that he was splitting my sides throughout the movie. But the surrounding moment is not funny at all. Um, but yeah, so there's really a lot of darkness and depression and kind of terror in this in the back half of this movie and it's such a well, jagged I mean, switch what did you what did you think i think about? yeah no I, I i mean i'm i'm right there with you i think another interesting thing that i kind of noticed was it it uses the same joke structure as the beginning of the movie mm. towards the end but it's it's using it for a darker effect. Mm. So the example I can think of is, uh, you know, and we're kind of jumping around all around, but that I think that's okay because I, I think that's kind the of the movie does that this, too. This, so. this, well, yeah, yeah, fair point. Um, yeah, if this episode wasn't nonlinear, we wouldn't be doing it right. <laughs> um, but no, the the scene where he comes across uh, Charles Grodin after he's pushed the woman oh out of God. the window, yeah, and you get this absurdist twist where he's confronting Grodin and Grodin saying, well, I only raped her once. Yeah. And it's like, holy shit. And, and the, like you're having that reaction, but then it, it it flips it on its head and he's the one who gets arrested. Yeah. You know, it's the same structure of those jokes early on, but it's being used for the darkest effect possible. You're right. And like, you could think like, oh my God, of course, of course. It's always a bait and switch. He's being arrested for being AWOL after this person just committed a murder. And um, 
that scene too. But you're right. You're right. I get what you're saying. That it's like a similar structure to the jokes. But there's no. You might kind of. There's no joke. You might. It, the punchline is is yeah. fuck. That sucks. You might. <laughs> it, it almost evokes more of a nervous laugh, like or just a just like a a a, a terror of of. Of, it's so effective in that way, where you still recognize the absurdity, and there is some comic value there. But the surrounding scenario is so bleak that it does not allow you to give like a like a belly laugh or anything like that. And I th- I love that it's it's just so obvious through watching this movie, and it's just it was right in front of my face all along, but I never really saw it hit so perfectly as it was in this movie is when they're having that conversation, he's talking to Groden and he's like, you can't just kill people. Like, do you know what you've done? And then he's, and Groden says something to the effect of like, I mean, I don't think they're going to make big fuss over one girl. There's thousands of us dying every day. And he's, and then he's like, you can't take a life of a human being. And it's, it really underlined it to me how absurd and ridiculous warfare is because it's just like, Every couple of years, every couple of decades, whatever it is for any individual nation or two nations or however many of the conflict, we just go, okay, murder is legal until this is over. Like, okay, we can, we can murder. You can do what you got to do. And it's just so crazy that it's just something that happens. It's just <laughs> wild. And we just accept mass murder. And it's like, it's like a legal act in these crazy yeah. scenarios. And that, this movie really kind of like caught me off guard thinking like that is absurd. I've actually never Mm -hmm. thought about how absurd it is to legalize a bloodbath for a little while until it's over. Like that is just complete insanity. Yeah, no, it's, I think, um, I don't know. I, I, I I think part of what's maybe a little bit getting lost in this because we're, we're so fascinated by the dark turn of this is just, this movie is hysterical so at the beginning, funny. and it's using the same the same bait and switch kind of stuff to mm-hmm. to elicit you know laughs at the beginning and mm-hmm. you know those laughs become cries by the end but you know i'm just going back to to a scene from very early on that i just cackled laughing at was uh right after the first scene with milo and uh and the captain mm-hmm. uh kind of you know when they're first talking about which by the way that has the single best shot in the movie in my opinion which uh, is i do the, we the have plane talk, landing yeah. with the 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 thing well we'll get to favorite yeah, shots and we'll stuff get to eventually, that. Yeah, but, yeah. but right after that bit um where they're talking about you know milo is describing how he's going to turn this into like a capitalistic enterprise and you know make mm-hmm. everybody money and uh the captain asks Milo, where the hell did you get all this silk? And then it cuts to, to Yossarian in the plane. And he's like, where the hell is my parachute? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gets, so good. And he gets the little, the little like uh receipt of whatever the, the share yeah. is. And he pulls <laughs> Gives him a share. And he's, and then uh, uh, he's so funny. Just the way he's nervously like, we have to go back now. We have to go back. Yeah. <laughs> no, we got to go back. And then, Classic Arkin, and by the way. That's just Charles quintessential Charles Roden comes in and is so hysterical throughout that entire so scene. So calm and just, hey, man. Yeah, and just like, and, and it's the perfect foil to Usaria just losing, it, losing his shit. And also, in addition to that scene being side-splitting, and that's the one that made me laugh the most in the movie. That's the one that I had to keep rewinding. And is has, in one of my favorite comedy scenes I've seen in recent memory. Like, it's just going to be with me forever. And I actually was surprised that I didn't remember it from the first time I saw it. 
Uh, but it's just, it's also looks great. The scene looks super realistic. Let's not forget that this movie came oh, out in does. 1970. And they're in a cockpit with some sort of a plate background that's showing flak flying and other planes. And you, I just buy it completely. It looks, it looks completely fantastic. And it feels like you're there's, there. There's another shot later um, that I... I, I literally had to just watch it three or four times the way you're talking about watching the the first scene with Groden. But so there's there's a shot where it's from the front of the bomber, mm-hmm. and you've got like three or four planes in the background also flying, and clearly they're real planes. Yes. And the front of the plane, you can see like it's it's framed in such a way that the the scene is taking place in the cockpit at the front of the the plane. Um, and you can even see the bomb bay doors open yes. and the bombs drop out and stuff. And all the actors are within the cockpit and you can see them all interacting and having this scene. But they're in a moving airplane and the camera is locked off in a way that I, I physically do not know how he achieved that shot. Yeah. I, I can't tell what is fake and what is real. Yeah. It, it, it it works on literally every level. And I got chills watching that shot because I was like, how the hell do you do that? There are shots all over this movie like that. And and what I find so fascinating is if you watch a movie like Star Wars, and I'm not bashing on Star Wars, that's an amazing movie. But a lot of those special effects shots, you can kind of tell that they're well, old. That they a were a quarter of the budget of this movie, if that. If that. Yeah. And they're like, um, you, could, you, could see, you could see the age. I couldn't see the age on any of these shots. They look unbelievable. They're, they're so... I just was like, I don't know how it looks this good. I love that you pointed. I think out that I think we too. should mention in conjunction with this that at the time, the the planes that they hired for this movie, they had the largest private air force in the world on the set of this movie. Yeah, I heard a variety of numbers, but I also heard something along the lines of like ninth largest of any kind in the world, also including I think I countries. Saw sixth largest. It's 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 nuts to think about how much money they had to burn on this movie. But also just, I guess we did touch it, but that I think that cockpit scene where they're, where it's so funny and just Arkin just climb, you bastard, climb. And, the, and I guess that sh- camera shake was just the DP shaking the camera. Like that, and they just did it in <laughs> That's camera. That's awesome. And it looks perfect. It looks so frantic. You feel like you're there. And Groden with that calm when he lights his pipe off camera and Arkin's like, fire! And then it just pulls out, <laughs> and Groan's just smoking the pipe. <laughs> I forgot about that bit. Yeah, and he's like, he's like, what are you worried about? And then when they're like asking if they're there, he's got his pipe, and he's just looking at like some map, and he's like, I think we're there. <laughs> like in just like the most bland, starchy way. He he was splitting my sides, but again, he gets super fucking creepy and terrifying later in the movie. But he has those scenes that are hilarious. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it kind of comes to and, and you know, this was my thought while watching the movie. Like this might sound like a pretentious take, but, you know, my read on this movie was it's it's thesis is the only insane thing is being sane in the face of all this insanity. Yeah. Yes. And that's a catch 22. I love that first conversation that Arkin has with uh, the actor Jack Guilford, who plays the doctor who is, I think, really, really strong in the movie. But just mm-hmm. breaking down what a Catch-22 is, that's a really difficult scene to get just from a writing standpoint and explain 
this idea that's being invented and being explained to people for the first time, of which is just damned if you do, damned if you don't, an absurd logic loop. But the fact that not only do they have a difficult scene to achieve through dialogue alone, everything else that's going on in that scene is incredibly complicated. That's what I was just going to say. That's one of the things that I love most about the movie is how complicated some of these shots are and how amazing they are. So It really feels like Nichols was like putting a challenge to himself and was like, I want to make, I, I want to accomplish not only an incredible dialogue sequence, but I want to overcomplicate this shot as much as possible. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know why he does it, but the man pulls it off. Yeah, he said that he learned later to enjoy cutting more and edits more. But he said he felt like he was the inverse of most filmmakers. Most filmmakers Mm -hmm. start with doing a lot of cuts and then they get some movies under their belt and they're like, ooh, let's take some stabs at some long takes now that I know what I'm doing. He was the exact opposite where he liked to start with long takes and then later in his career, which I'm excited to get to at some day whenever I get to it, uh, he enjoyed making more cuts and making more edits. But I love that he did big long ones for this movie because it makes it so impressive. And well, that's, I mean, that's just more evidence of just what a punk rock filmmaker yeah. he was at the time. And an argument could be made, and I do not agree with this argument, that it's kind of almost distracting, but it's worth it because yeah. it's so fun to, to be But it like, doesn't detract from the scene. The no. scenes work yeah. with, you know, both elements independently are yeah. working. Like, yeah. it's not like, like, you know, I, I can, I can absolutely see some lesser filmmaker trying to tackle this script mm-hmm. and those dialogue scenes not having the you know the the banter and the 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 mm-hmm. rat-a-tat quality that they do yeah but he somehow achieves both and and number one that's a testament to his skill uh as a director but i think i think i mean you got to give credit to the actors being able to pull off those scenes oh my in the God. midst of that kind of give, that chaos. Give credit to everyone involved because that scene we're talking about, the Catch-22 speech, explaining what a Catch-22 is. There is a plane taxiing from behind him that ha- they ha- the actors have to hit their mark and also feel comfortable in the scene mm-hmm. that they're not going to get hit by this fucking plane that's coming right yeah. behind them. This plane goes by and then there's also camera movement involved. Who knows how the fuck they captured the sound? Because a goddamn World War II airplane just went by. I'm sure there's a lot of ADR. I would imagine. But, I mean, it, it's not noticeable. So the ADR, ADR is really, really well done. Yeah. For those who don't know, ADR is additional dialogue recording, which is where uh, actors will go into a, a recording booth after the movie is completed. Um, and they'll re-record their dialogue and try and sync their voice to yeah. their own face, you know, mm-hmm. to, like in, in the scene, which, you know, occasionally, I guess I would actually say more often than not, it's highly noticeable when you can see an actor's lips moving and the ADR is being laid over top of it because, you know, especially in older movies, they just didn't have the techniques down to match the... Um, the sound of what that voice would sound like in that scene, uh, it, you know, there, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. But in this movie, I, 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 if there if there's a lot of ADR, I can't pick up on it. And and to your point, if they're catching it on the day, that's one of the most incredible audio feats, feats I've ever seen. Yeah, it's crazy. And I also kind of like just as we're talking about some of the audio qualities of this movie, I really like that. I don't know if it was an accident or if it was intentional. But they let the audio kind of peak and break at times. And again, Mm -hmm. it might have just been a mistake, but I think it works really well because 
it kind of adds this sort of frantic, chaotic energy that I yeah. think is totally appropriate. And so whether or not it was a mistake, who knows? But it, it I think it's a, to the movie's benefit when they pierce through like that. Th- there's something so and, and look, I mean, I mean, you know, it's easy to sit here and be like, well, why isn't everybody Mike Nichols? Like, I mean, there's an obvious answer to that, which is because they're not fucking Mike Nichols. <laughs> but at the same time, like have some have some respect for the medium and, and how much more powerful and, and, and a deeper uh, uh connection you can make with these things when it, there's a tactile feel to to those kind of shots like there I, I would take every shot of a plane in this movie to me is more effective than any cgi shot in a modern you know plane epic or what you know like i just like i'm thinking of an example like like red tails is a movie about the tuskegee airmen um, where it's, you know, a bunch of plane shots and it's a lot of CGI. And it's just, it doesn't hit you the same way. It just doesn't. I completely agree with you. It's, it's every shot where you, where you, you think you see all these planes and stuff rumbling down the tarmac, taking off that first takeoff shot where they fly, the whole yep. squadron flies by the tower and they walk down yep. like that. You think of how much money to pay all the pilots. How much money do you have to pay to get everybody there? The gas? The crew, the gas, that's a great point. That is an incredibly expensive shot, and it's worth it. It's worth time it Time consuming. They, I mean, yeah. They, I guess they had a certain time of every day where they would do that shot because they knew how important it was and how complicated it was, and they had to get as many cracks at it as they could. So they had a certain hour of the day, that, or however much, probably took longer than an hour, where they would do that shot. And they couldn't even bother resetting it because could you imagine resetting that st- shot back to the beginning and trying it again? The, the light would be totally different. It would be a different time of day by the time you coordinate all that. There's literally a shot in this movie where you watch the plane, and this this might be the one you're referring to. I might have this this uh, mixed up in my head, but I there's a shot where the planes take off and then the camera continues through the same shot into like a house, and then you see the planes into formation in the window behind the characters. Oh yeah, there's, like there's so much. The shit level like that of in there. detail yeah. is just is is incredible. No, that's not a CGI plane. That someone has to plan for that plan that plane to fly through the shot just so. Yeah. That's apparently what I mean they about did the that. Orchestration they did that particular plan. shot four times, and that's all they could do because I mean that's 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 all you get. It's it's. That's what I that's one of the things I find most charming about this movie. There's just something so immediate about that. Yeah. And just and just being someone who has some idea of how movies are made, a lot of times that can pull you like that's a negative. In this I think it's almost a positive where you're like, "Oh, no, my actually, god. Yeah. How yeah, it makes you they, appreciate it that much more." How did they coordinate all this? It's it's Agreed. crazy. And that shot you alluded to it earlier. That shot where um where Milo is talking to Mountain Balsam's character, is kind of like the leader, and they're talking about the enterprise that Milo wants to start, this whole syndicate thing. That shot with the plane behind them, smoke trailing, coming in for a crash landing, this also adds to kind of the humor portion that we were talking about. I think that scene is hysterical. But that shot, the plane kind of crash landing, and then... They cut, they swivel to a, a wreckage plane. I think that's one of the best shots I've ever seen in my life. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's in, it's in my favorite of all time. It looks amazing. The way the smoke looks, the column of smoke coming out the engine behind them, 
the way they're just chatting about their day, you know, like this is just normal work environment stuff. This plane is crash landing behind them. It explodes. Their hats fly. And they're just having the, the fire trucks are coming. And they're just having this chat. That's, well, then that's they, then they turn around, they time. get in a Jeep and they drive across the runway while all these other cars are coming the opposite direction. Like not, yeah. you know, on the level of uh, putting your actors in harm's way to, yeah. to an extent. Yes. Um, blocking the scene perfectly, having the, the camera move in such a controlled way when all this chaos is yeah. going on. Like... Every element of it just feeds into the appreciation of, wow, like, yeah. I don't know how you pull that shit off. And then, and then you know, and again, just going back to the performances, I mean, these actors are knocking it out of the park while they're dealing with all this shit. Yeah. I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, there are, that that will be, when I reflect on the movie in years ahead, and I actually think it's going to be one that I return to and watch fairly frequently because I really dug it too. Agreed. And I do have some things that I, I'm not sure how I feel about with the movie and we can get into that later. But when I think about the movie, I'm going to think of those shots of certain w- shots in the movie. There's probably four or five of them where I'm just like, that, that's incredible. That crash landing one is one. The takeoff sequence that we discussed, that's another one of my favorites. And the bombing sequence at the near the end of the movie when they call in the bomb so that the Germans will offload the cotton, which is just an absurd story point. Um, that's one of the big, the greatest set pieces I've ever seen. And they just literally just blew up the set. And it's real explosives. And just thinking about how the pressure that's on the actors during that. And I guess, we're you know, as we're talking about the cinematography, he wanted to use the explosions to light that scene. So there are no, there aren't a lot of like lights Covering, he just used the lights of the explosion to light everything, and the scene just looks incredible. And I'm just sitting there. Takes watching a lot of it, balls like, to to rely on unreliable light in that way when you're filming, like it's crazy. And to to just trust that that is going to give your actors enough light that that what they're doing is going to uh, read on camera. No. I mean, I mean that's 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 master shit. Yeah. That's that's next level, and he should have been at least nominated, if not one, for this. But you know, you know, it's how absurd. I we, can't believe he didn't get nominated for best. Every year, this. I get more and more to your side of the aisle of just saying "fuck the Academy Awards." They have no idea what they're oh, talking they're bullshit. about. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it's one of the best shot movies I've ever seen, um, and those set pieces are some of the grandest. Like the, how big of the, all those explosions are, you can feel them, and you can tell that they're real heavy massive explosions and you think of like this one shot where where john voigt's up in the tower talking to them on the mega and the explosions are all around him and it looks amazing but he literally must have felt like the heat from those explosions like he they're, they seem they look like they're right there and it's just um yeah again it's one of the best shot movies i've seen in a long time and i love that they were so ambitious with their approach because i think it it really adds something to the movie in my opinion in some of my research, I was kind of, I wouldn't say that Nichols disowns this movie. Like, he is definitely proud of parts of it, and he should be proud. Sounds like he's come around a lot more in yeah. recent, like, like, closer towards the end of his yeah. life, he, he really came around on it. But he, I remember a conversation he was having with Soderbergh where he was talking about how Alan Arkin was a little bit frustrated because mm. so much of Nichols' di- focus in terms of just directing this thing 
was just so much of his mind was taken up with the logistics. Like, we got to get that plane there. We got to get this coming in the shot. And Arkin kind of felt that he wasn't, that Nichols was not giving enough focus on the actual actors and the performances. He was kind of lost in the weeds of the scope of it all, which how could anybody blame him? I don't know how it would be possible with, with what they're trying to achieve. Like, it would be so easy to forget about the performances. If you're focusing on the plane, did that plane cross? Did anybody crash? Is everyone alive still? Like, it would be so easy to lose track of the performances. All that said, I really think a lot of the performances in this movie are super, super strong. And especially Arkin's. I think Arkin is amazing in this. Yeah, I mean, I did. I So I heard somebody kind of talking about Arkin's performance in this, and they were a little bit kind of brushing it off, which I thought was a little rude, uh, because they were saying that... Um, more or less Arkin is just playing Arkin in this movie, which, you know, I, I, I get that take, you know, cause I mean, he is just kind of this guy, like, like this is the energy that he brings across in most of his roles. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of just this, like this guy who's just like, I'm at, I'm at my wits end and why is no one else seeing what I'm seeing kind yeah. of thing? Like what the fuck, you know, that that's mm-hmm. kind of the energy of Arkin generally. So, I mean, like I get what they're saying in that respect, but but it's such a complete performance, man. Yeah, I think it's. I don't know how. I, I don't know how you can just disregard it that way. Sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 no. I, 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 I'd like to have a conversation. With it. it was like, I don't know what that means when people say that. Like, ah, uh, it's just someone being that. Like, well, yeah, that's that person's more natural rhythms and energies. Like, what, what do you think? I mean. If you're, I mean, he's just perfect casting. You're yeah. blaming him for being cast perfectly? Nichols saw that energy and that vibe, and that's what he wanted, and it fits like a glove. You know, there are certain actors who completely transform and change drastically. I, you know, the go-to answer that everyone says is Daniel, De, De, Daniel Day-Lewis, and his praise is very well-deserved, where he will literally tap into, like, different people it seems and because his performances are so crazily different from one another i feel like joaquin's is somewhat similar to that too joaquin phoenix has a lot of he's getting into that territory yeah but a lot of kind of more old school actors quote unquote people like pacino people like de niro they're incredible actors but you kind of know the energy they're the type of energy that they're going to bring and that's what you're after and i don't think that's that's a flaw at all. So anyone who says that about Arkin, I would just say, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? We're, we're, we've gotten there organically, but just talking about the cast in general, we've hit on Arkin. Like it is, I think this is part partly to do with how the movie was received when it came out is there was so much expectation before this movie came out with the cast was announced, a lot of big stars, a lot of up and comers, fucking Orson Welles is in this movie based off this famous book and like the expectations were kind of crushing I think but now Mm -hmm. that we're so far removed from all of that we can just really kind of point out how good some of these fucking performances are and I do think there are are. some that don't work great for me but the majority of them are are excellent and I was wondering if there's any ones that you wanted to kind of hit who maybe really worked for you or which characters really kind of popped um yeah, I mean, we've touched on most of the ones that I really wanted to bring up. I mean, we haven't mentioned Bob Newhart. I thought he was really funny as Major Major. Mm-hmm. Um, he he really only has a couple of scenes that that uh, he 
gets to own, but uh, but I thought he was great. Um, you know, you just mentioned Orson Welles. Every bit he has is just hysterical to me. That's funny. Um, See, I didn't think Orson Welles really worked for me. I th- oh, I, I loved it. I, I mean, I, I loved seeing him. And it was just, it was so over the top, but maybe that's right for it. I don't know. I was unsure. I don't know. It worked for me. I mean, you I I could absolutely see cutting that and not losing anything from the movie. I mean, to be honest, this movie's bloated. Like I I could see cutting 20 minutes out of this thing and it's still working just as well. Yeah. Would you, Um, would you want to though? Like if you, if it was up to you and like, you could trim 15 minutes from this movie. Do you want to? Like, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough question. I, it depends on. I, I would have to sit there and kind of actually like count out like what I would cut yeah. and stuff. Um, it would be which easier. I didn't, I didn't really do. I think it would be easier for most people to like if it was like fifteen minutes shorter. But I'm glad that if it's what they wanted it to be, it should be what it should be. You know what I mean? To me, though, having Orson Welles saying there will be no moaning in this outfit yeah. is it, that's that's just gold yeah. when he calls his girlfriend a slut like the way he says it is so crazy when she's yeah, laughing at Yosarian naked and he's just his he, he does have really st- strong presence but I just thought he was kind of overacting in some of his comedy bits uh, he's overacting. He's the most restrained of anybody in this movie. I thought he was a bit. I saw him as a bit hammy, and I glad. I'm glad that you liked him, and I'm certainly not trying to change the opinion. But something about it felt almost more fake than some of the others. Like, and yeah, yeah. But it might well, really. I mean, work. that might that might be because uh, Orson Welles originally wanted to make Catch Yes, I heard, and that. he felt he felt a little like, like pissed off that that Nichols was getting to make it and he yeah. wasn't. I guess Nichols said he was very happy that he didn't know that while he was directing Orson Welles because he was already scared shitless that he had to mm. tell Orson Welles what to do, and he said it would have been a, it would have been so much harder if he had heard by then that Orson Welles had wanted to do this movie. Um, but he also, you know, that scene where he's driving in the car and the two like subordinates are jogging behind him. Did you hear that so story? So funny. No, what, oh, what happened? So funny. So I guess all of a sudden Orson Welles just tried to start being a hero of like the other actors. I mean, it kind of came out of nowhere. And he was like, we're not going to have these men actually run behind the car, you know, like. That's ridiculous. You can't make these actors run. So they had to like shut down for a day and build like a platform on the back of the Jeep so that the actors could just like run in place on the platform and they could kind of fake it that they're actually running, but they're really not running. And it was Orson Welles insisting. And as they're they're watching this in the commentary, like they come to a stop. Like the cheap kind of slows, but the, they're still running, and it doesn't it doesn't really work. And Nichols just goes, "And look at that! It looks phony as hell." Like, <laughs> like he just called it out. But like it was Orson Welles insisting that they not make the actors actually run behind the jeep. So I thought it was that's so, so funny. So he was certainly you know flexing some muscles on set. Well, it probably explains why he just completely disappears from the movie uh, at a certain point. I mean, yeah. that, that's probably just you know structural <laughs> too. But old school gag. I don't know. You're not gonna you're not gonna not have Orson Welles in your movie if you filmed it, right? Yeah, of course. And and again, I I think it. So much of the movie is so surreal and strange and bizarre that these hammy performances kind of fit right in, and and so so it does work on some level. But there are others I bought more than him. I must say, fair enough. It was a really kind of like low-hanging fruit gag, but I fell for it 
when he calls for a chair for his girlfriend and the everybody fires like cannons out of their seats to rush and give her the chair. I thought that was really funny. And that whole like kind of horny GI thing. I, 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 I know they were kind of the early part of this movie is horny as shit. Yeah, for sure. And it's again, it's they're kind of cheap laughs, but they they were effective for me. And I, I, I found them funny. There were other like I didn't I was in love with the Bob Newhart scene, although there is one thing in that scene. I mean, he's in multiple scenes, but when he first gets promoted and he's talking to that other actor who's like the lowest on the rung and who is also in The Graduate, by the way. Bruce Kirby, he plays the landlord in The Graduate. He keeps trying to kick Dustin Hoffman out of Berkeley. But he plays the kind of lowest on the totem pole of these lieutenants or whatever. Um, and there's that scene where he puts on the fake mustache. You know what I mean? He's like walking around Bob Newhart's like, apparently, and I didn't notice it until they pointed it out in the commentary, and Soderbergh didn't notice it either. The, the picture behind changes. It goes from three times. Three times. It goes or from twice. Yeah. FDR to Churchill to Stalin. Just whenever he like the camera pans and that picture is no longer in frame, they like they would swap it out and put up a different one. And Nichols said literally it was just to like amuse themselves. So there's all sorts of goofy shit in this movie, but the movie is not aiming to be realistic, really. So I think it really works for me. A lot of those kind of bigger cuts. And then I think always maybe my favorite performance is John John Voight's. Maybe it's between him and Arkin, but John Voight, I think, just is deserves discussion in this movie specifically because. Well, tell me what you love about it. I love the turn the character makes. Like when the movie starts, he's just like really charming and really likable, and when he's kind of starts pitching the syndicate ideas. The way he moves his hands are like really kind of structured and almost like military parade-like or something. He's just very like... Maybe this says something about us, but I immediately distrusted him. Really? That's interesting. I, oh, yeah. Immediately. I was like, this guy's bad news. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I, 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 I fell under his spell, you know. Um, but then when it's, you know, the real darkness of the Enterprise and the syndicate starts really bubbling up, specifically when he's like on the beach, like marking all the statues. You remember that scene? And he's got the crates of tomatoes and stuff. It's like, oh yeah, this is going really poorly. But then after when he's in Italy and he's kind of running everything and it's terrifying. That turn really works. Yeah, he's so menacing. So to go from this kind of like opportunistic sort of charismatic, and I get the vibe you got too, where you were kind of suspicious of him. Um, but then to turn I just that don't in, I don't trust capitalists. That's true. Um, but for him to take that switch into the menacing side, I and what I found bizarre is I recognized him more when he was being menacing. And I haven't seen a ton of John Voight movies, but when he's early in this in the film, I could barely recognize him. Like you have to squint and be like, I think that's John Voight. But then when he's, he's young, when he's kicking Yosarian out of the car and he's going like full Gestapo. I was like, oh, now that looks like John Voight, you know. Um, so he, I thought he was really, really special in this movie. Would you be quick to recommend this to somebody? If someone asks. 100%. You, yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah. No, I, I think, look, I, I think it's got to be, um, I, I definitely can see modern audiences kind of checking out of this movie 
early if they're if they're not willing to go with the non-linear structure of it. Yeah. Um, I think any of my friends that are into, I'm trying to think of good examples of, of what I could connect this to, but you know, just, the, I think a movie that comes to mind is like, if, if, if one of my friends was a huge fan of the big Lebowski, yes, I might push them towards this yes. because it's not, not that it's, it's similar in structure. It's not, but in terms of tone, it just has this shaggier kind of like meandery tone to it mm-hmm. where it's got stuff on its mind, but it's not going to be very direct about it right away. And then it'll, you know, it, I, I don't know. It, no, it's, it, it, feel, it feels of a piece to me. Yeah, I think that's a perfect because in my mind, I was thinking if someone really liked Inherent Vice, I would mm, suggest this. Great example. And Big Lebowski and Inherent Vice share a lot of commonality, very much their sure. own movies. But they, you know, so if the type of person I would pitch this to is if they like a little bit of weirdness, if they like things that are open to interpretation, if they like dark humor, you you must to enjoy this movie. You have to be down with dark humor. Um, but yeah, I Pitch love black what, humor. Yeah, yeah. And at some point where it gets so dark, it's no longer funny, and it's not trying to be at that point. Uh, but mm. um, I really like what you said about the Big Lebowski because I was right there with you. If someone is down with again some little strangeness, hard to follow, and dream sequences, you know, both of those movies have dream sequences. Stuff too. that doesn't always make sense on the surface. Yes, yeah, you got to be able to ride with that. And if someone was like. If I knew they were into it, I would push this movie hard because I think it's really, really good. And I'm really glad we watched it. Yeah. No, me too. Well, I think I think that'll probably do it on Catch-22. Yeah. I'm very, uh, very glad we watched that. I, I'm so glad that that was the first movie out of the gates. I think mm-hmm. it was a perfect, perfect thing to start with. Uh, we got to trust I, in the dark, dude. We got to trust in I the mean, dot. Hashtag trust yeah. in the dark. The dart has spoken. The dart has fucking spoken, yeah. my friend. Well, so speaking I of the dart nominee, speaking, yeah. before we before we dive into the the rest of the the wrap up portion, which is going to be us deciding what we're watching next week, I do want to reiterate what the concept of the show is yeah, because yeah, we yeah. didn't really start out with that. But right, to, to reiterate for people, we have a dartboard at Jared's house, and we've decided on ten movies of each of ours that we are are putting on the board, uh, numbers one through twenty. Number ten was hit last week for Catch Twenty Two. Uh, Jared, first of all, we need to figure out what's going onto the board in place of Catch Twenty Two. Yep. What do you got for me? You know, a lot of a lot of good contenders, and the easy choice. And what I'm not going to do, not because it's the easy choice, but because of the conversation we had. My gut was telling me Mash because I've never seen it, but then through conversation, I realized you had just seen Mash recently, and. I, if we, it's if, too close. It's, too, it's a little too close. So I think MASH will get on the list for me sometime in the next, who, who knows? It'll, it's on the contender list. It'll get on the board at some point. And when okay. that hits, I will be excited to talk about it alongside Catch. It'd be fun to loop back to yeah. Catch-22 in like like six to nine months. But if you I, know? I would feel shitty if I put MASH on the board and then like two weeks we hit it. That would just seem too soon. So exactly. for that reason, I'm not going to do MASH for now. And I'm drawn to the movie Sling Blade, which I've never seen. Ooh, okay. Have you seen this movie? No, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So all I know is is Billy Bob Thornton. I think it was like a almost like a one man band sort of thing, and it kind of was one of his big coming out parties. I really don't know anything about it. I heard an interview in which um, I believe Norm Nor McDonald was talking about this movie or talking to. A famous actor about it doesn't matter. 
I feel good about it. It's a kind of a more current choice. I think we want to get a little bit more balance on the board of some between older one and 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 newer ones. And this movie, I think, came out in the mid to late nineties, so somewhat somewhat okay. recent. And I, I'm kind of intrigued. And you said you haven't seen it, right? I have not. Cool. Are you are you interested to see it? I don't know that it's ever been high on my list, but I mean, it's one of those movies where I'd watch it and I'd love to be surprised by it. Cool. All right. So I'm going to put that in in place of Catch-22 for number 10. Beautiful. Nice. All right. So is it is it dart time then? I think it's dart time, buddy. I heard you miss it again. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. I really have a hard time <laughs> filming things while I'm doing them. So, because again, and on this, I had a new wrinkle this time. Some asshole had me turn it horizontal or whatever. You know, I had to switch. Oh, it you, over. well, you didn't have to do that I on finally, this one. I just meant like if you were getting the whole thing. I finally had Vert McGirt down and I got twisted up on my side. But anyway, aye, aye, aye. second throw yielded a result. And what is it? The dart has spoken 17. The dart says 17, which is, I believe, a Drew Clark special. What do we got for 17, Drew? Burning from 2018. Burning it is a Korean tw- film. Ooh, baby. All right, I'm excited. I, I, know, I don't know shit about this movie. I've never heard of it. It's by Lee Chang Dong, amazing filmmaker out of Korea that I have still not dug into any of his films, but um, I've heard Secret Sunshine is an incredible movie and uh, Burning is his most recent effort. Uh, Again, 2018, writer-director. Yeah, I'm really excited to to go in completely blind to something. All I know is that it's supposed to be amazing. I don't really know much beyond that. Yeah, I love that the dark... I just like I just like this way this works. The dart has spoken. I was nervous that I was going to hit another even number. I was like, I really don't want to do two Jared movies in a row. That'll happen at some point. But I'm glad that we're not doing back to back Jared movies. I'm glad the dart did not say that. Well, that's going to do it for our episode on Catch Twenty Two. You can catch us next week covering Burning. Uh, we're excited to to continue this journey with everyone. Uh, if you are listening to this actively and you're just catching up on old episodes, send us your current dartboard. Let us know what you're working on. What are you mo- watching in in the background? Um, what do you want to see us uh, cover in the future? Try and have some influence over what we put on the board. Um, Love having you guys along on the journey, whoever you are, uh, if there's anyone. Who fucking knows? <laughs> but either way, have a good night. Cheers, and we will catch you next week. Sounds good. Peace, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or if you have a bullseye selection you want to send our way, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. If it's for the bullseye, make sure you use subject line bullseye confidential. Follow us on Instagram at Dartboard Movie Night. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric.